Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the BJ Psych International Podcast. My name is Sachin. And my name is Hammy. Today we are going to talk about an article from the BJ Psych International Journal called Reflections on Mental Health Care for an Asylum Seeker Population Caught in Limbo on the Greek Island of Samos. And we'll be joined by the author, Dr. Lindsay Solera Ducar, to talk about the article in a moment. Hemi, what is this article about? Well, in this article that Lindsay has written for the BJ Psych International, she talks about her experiences of working with the MSF, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, in providing care on the Greek island of Samos for refugees. And for those who don't know about the work that the MSF does on the island of Samos, there's a, an article on the MSF website, quite recent actually, recent as time of recording, explaining exactly what they've been doing over the past year. Which, if you want to read it, it's titled MSF Teams Provide Emergency Aid to 570 People Arriving on Samos Island. Over the last year, the MSF have provided emergency medical and psychological first aid to 570 people who've arrived in small boats on the Greek island of Samos. All of the 570 people who were treated by the MSF, including 24 pregnant women, had travelled from the coast of Turkey just a few miles away. A large number of them had experienced several different forms of violence during their journeys to seek asylum and better circumstances in Europe. And when you say 570, this is the people who have received emergency medical and psychological first aid. Mm. The camp on Samos was originally built for 600 people, but has in the past hosted up to 10 times as many as that. And in her article, Lindsay mentions that during her time there, there was an estimated three and a half thousand people living in the camp. So quite crowded, as you can imagine. Mm. You get a more emotive take from the MSF themselves, talking about the inhumane treatment that people arriving on the island have been subject to. Just to go from the MSF's own article, it says that most people arriving on Samus describe having been intercepted by security and border authorities on the course of previous journeys, both on land and at sea. This includes being forcibly returned to Turkish waters as many as nine times, according to one person who was assisted by MSF. It's important to explain i guess the background of what people have gone through before they arrive which might in part provide some context for the circumstances that they find themselves in or how this can be quite traumatizing for them individuals treated by the msf have reported being subjected to or being witnesses to physical violence or inhumane and degrading treatments which included beatings strip searches forced intimate area examinations, thefts of possessions, and being left adrift in motorless dinghies at sea. Another article on the MSF website just talks about the scale of human suffering on the Greek islands, mentioning that the structure is a prison-like centre. The facility is remote on an exposed area of the island and holds people in shipping containers surrounded by barbed wire with controlled entry and exit. That's kind of the conditions now that people on the island are being faced with. Mm. 
think it should be noted that whilst the MSF provided services at the new camp on Samos, well, new as of September 2021, they recognise that it is a re-traumatising environment for many of the migrants who find themselves there, mm. feeling locked up, imprisoned, unable to escape, almost as if they're being persecuted for the crime of seeking safety and stability, they say. And the MSF has asked the European Union and Greece to ensure dignified alternatives to camps, to allow access to a fair and dignified asylum procedure, and to ensure adequate and tailored healthcare adapted to the needs of people fleeing violence, conflict, and trauma. And I suppose that's a big part of why there is a focus on providing mental health care for the individuals there who have experienced violence, have gone through conflict and are living through the consequences of the trauma that they've experienced. Yeah, and the re-traumatizing conditions of the camp itself. And the quote from MSF is that the majority of our mental health patients on Samos present symptoms of depression and PTSD. Between April and August of 2021, a shocking 64% of new patients that reached our mental health clinic presented thoughts of suicide. So yeah, these are the sort of conditions that our author Lindsay would have been facing when she went over with MSF to help support the mental health of asylum seekers at the island of Samos. Yeah, let's hear from Dr. Lindsay Solaradukar about her experiences volunteering with the MSF on the island of Samos. My name is Lindsay Solaradukar. I'm a psychiatry trainee in between core training and higher training. And for the last couple of years, I've been working with Médecins Sans Frontières as a psychiatrist. And as your article sets out, you've had an long-running ambition to work with MSF dating back to when you were a medical student so what was it that first attracted you to this type of work? Uh, yeah good question I think the first time I came across MSF was I think because my parents donated to them so I used to read the flyers and the leaflets that would come in the post and I just remember finding it really inspiring and thinking that I wanted to be part of that really and you held on to that idea. A lot of people have these kind of ambitions, but you made it a reality after your core psych training. So how did you make that leap? Yeah, yeah, you're right, because I think a lot of medical students talk about wanting to work with MSF one day, and I was always afraid that it might not work out for various reasons. And you do have to have a number of years of experience in psychiatry first, those three years, basically. And by that time, often people have got other life priorities. But I sort of, yeah, hung on to it, as you say, applied as soon as I could as I was finishing core training. And despite the fact that many people had, had sort of raised their eyebrows at working abroad as a psychiatrist, MSF actually has a huge need for psychiatrists. And I was offered my first assignment in Greece the day after my interview. So, and ever since, I've been offered various positions. I'm now on my third assignment. So yes, I just kind of persisted, persevered with my aim and it turned out to work. So yeah, I've been lucky. Is that what you were expecting to be assigned to Greece and to work in a camp for asylum seekers? And did you know much about that beforehand? No, I was actually quite surprised. I think maybe my parents were relieved that the first place I was going to was Europe rather than 
somewhere perhaps more unstable. But yeah, I was, of course, I was aware of the refugee crisis, but, you know, in a way that it is a little bit distant. I've always been kind of interested in campaigning work around refugees and asylum seekers. But yeah, I didn't know so much about the situation on the Greek islands. And when I was offered this position, the medical coordinator for Greece gave me a call to kind of describe the situation because she wanted me to really know the reality before I accepted so tell me about the reality. What is the function of Samos and its function in housing asylum seekers? Yeah, so Samos is one of the few Greek islands that have what they call reception and identification centres for asylum seekers who arrive by boat to Greece. And since about 2015, I think, when there was an EU-Turkey deal relating to asylum seekers and refugees, there's been a bit of a bottleneck on the islands. And so there's been sort of accumulation of asylum seekers on the islands waiting for their asylum claims to be processed before they can move on to the mainland or anywhere else. And Samos is one of these islands. So when I was there in Samos in 2020, there was a camp which originally was designed to accommodate about 600 people but at the time there were more like 3,000. And so really it was like a sort of a collection of makeshift shelters sort of spiralling outwards from the central original camp. And you said these additional shelters were made by the asylum seekers themselves? Exactly, yeah. Some NGOs would give out some, for example, the kind of tarpaulins, some kind of waterproofing. But most of the shelters were, yeah, just made by the asylum seekers themselves, or occasionally they maybe got hold of some tents, but there was a constant kind of rebuilding of shelters because of really heavy rain sometimes, and also there were quite a few fires in the camp as well at that time. And you arrived shortly after an earthquake. That's right, yeah, the day that I left the UK, I heard the news that there'd been an earthquake with its epicentre really close to Samos, and so... There was a lot of impact on the asylum seekers of that. I think it was quite a significant earthquake and there was a lot of damage to buildings in Samos and a couple of deaths. And, and yeah, and I think a lot of asylum seekers, especially those with difficulties with their mental health, were somewhat triggered by that event and that feeling of lack of safety and not knowing what was going to happen. Mm. Uh, yeah. Now, you were pre-warned by MSF what the situation would be like, but I guess nothing compares to arriving and laying eyes on the place yourself. What was your first reaction to arriving there? Well, the camp at that time, it's now moved, was visible just from the town. You could see this kind of collection of shelters and people kind of traipsing in and out of the entrances, the entrance to, you know, going to town for appointments and things like that. My first few days at work were quite full on because there was a fire in the camp that week. And so they immediately took me to a place where there were lots of people kind of in, I guess, what you would call acute stress reactions following this fire, some of whom obviously had had their own traumatic experiences in the past and so, you know, people dissociating and having panic attacks and uh, they sort of wheeled me and said, right, here you go, here's a psychiatrist, please deal with this. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was quite a shock. And wearing the MSF jacket as well, other organisations, sort of generally it brings a lot of respect, so I felt a lot of pressure to be useful in that situation. But really in at the deep end. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just wanted to cover before we move on that you mentioned that 
this island functions as a bottleneck now. Is there any sense when you're on this island as an asylum seeker of where you are in the process that you're moving on or are they feeling like they're there indefinitely? There was definitely a feeling that they were there indefinitely. The vast majority of my patients had been there for a year and a half or some two especially the single men it seemed like people with families and children moved on a little bit faster but the single men definitely felt like they'd been abandoned and had no idea really when they were going to hear the news that they could move onwards with their journey or obviously the news that they dreaded to hear which would be that they were going to be deported. And do you describe a situation of overcrowding 600 is the ideal capacity and it balloons to 3000 and basically a central location which is meant to be the housing and then it's sort of spiraled out what about resources like what's the sanitation situation like there if i understand correctly before msf arrived in samos there was not enough water or sanitation to cater for that many people and in fact at one point i think it was six thousand in that camp and the numbers had gone down a bit, I think, because of COVID and other reasons by the time I got there. And so MSF was providing clean water and then also supporting asylum seekers in building their own toilets. I think it was partly because of the authorities. It wasn't uh, accepted for MSF to build directly in the camp. So instead, they gave the materials and instructions and worked with the asylum seekers that they could build toilets. So, yeah, it wasn't a great situation, but improved a little bit with the help of MSF. And... Just so we get a full idea of who was there, where are the asylum seekers arriving from? The majority were from Syria, Afghanistan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Cameroon, a few other countries in Central and West Africa. Those were probably the biggest groups. And that will play a part in a second when we talk about the cultural factors in presentations. But in terms of MSF, what is their setup like on this island? At the time, um, there's been a bit of a change, which I can explain a little bit as well. At the time, MSF's programmes in Samos were basically sexual and reproductive health with a focus on sexual violence and attention for people who had experienced that both recently and more distantly. And then also the mental health component, which consisted of a team of psychologists and also the psychiatrist position as well. And then on top of that, they had a health promotion team who would work in the camp with volunteers in the camp and the community in the camp doing health promotion activities and kind of being that link between the services that MSF was offering outside of the camp and the camp itself. Uh, Last year, the camp has actually been moved to a more closed camp uh, a little further away from the town, mm. which has been quite controversial because it's described as being more kind of prison-like and it's also a bit out of the way so that, you know, the local population don't need to, to think about the, the asylum seekers there. Less oversight. Exactly. And although technically asylum seekers can move in and out of the camp, it is a lot more restrictive from what I hear and the cost of paying for the bus to get to the town where you know there might be appointments and other things is quite significant given that these asylum seekers only receive a small amount of money each month. So since that change, MSF has changed its activities slightly and I think because of the departure of other organisations, they're now providing primary healthcare in the camp as well a few days a week as well as continuing with the mental health services. And then they're also focusing on receiving arrivals as well, like going to the shores where the boats arrive to give immediate medical care if it's needed. And while you were there, that seems the 
core provisions of MSF were the sexual health and the mental health, which you describe as four psychologists, several cultural mediators, a social worker, and a mental health activity manager, plus you, the psychiatrist. If that wasn't there, what was there in terms of local provisions for mental health? Very, very little. So the Greek mental health system on Samos was there. There were a couple of psychiatrists working in the public system, but already the system was totally overloaded and it was hard for local people to get an appointment and even harder for asylum seekers owing to the stigma that they faced and discrimination in trying to access services which they in theory had a right to access and that was just an outpatient service there is no psychiatric hospital with inpatient provision on the island and so for more severe cases the only option and it was very difficult to achieve was getting somebody transferred to the mainland to be hospitalized there there were a couple of other organizations providing some sort of psychosocial support but not many had i don't think any had a psychiatrist at the time some had some psychologists so it was quite limited so very dependent on ngos and you mentioned that severe cases might be considered for inpatient treatment off the island on the mainland but you were seeing severe cases right yeah yeah absolutely i was really surprised by how severe some of these cases were at times i felt a bit like I was managing a sort of ambulatory psychiatric ward because we didn't have the possibility to admit people. And it was only really people who had already, for example, made a suicide attempt or had already come to some harm that were considered by the public system to be transferred. So, yeah, I felt like I was managing quite a lot of risk and quite a lot of severely unwell people. Let's just set the groundwork of what you were doing. Your role, obviously, was psychiatrist, but were you running a clinic? Were you seeing people in an emergency fashion? It was in the clinic, so we had a what was called a daycare centre for the mental health project. And so there, patients would come for sessions with the psychologists, and those that, as with most MSF projects, the system is always that psychology is the first port of entry to the programme. So it's only when the psychologists feel that a person needs some psychiatric attention that they would refer to me. So my day-to-day work was assessing new referrals from the psychologists and then giving follow-up as well. So I was focused mostly on the pharmacological treatment, but I worked alongside the psychologists so that they could get a kind of integrated approach with psychology and medication if it was needed. So in terms of pharmacology, in terms of medication, what were you uh, equipped to do on the island? So MSF usually has a kind of basic list of medications. So we had some SSRIs, floxetine, sertraline, paroxetine. We had a few antipsychotics, haloperidol, olanzapine and risperidone. And that was about it. So we had some mood stabilizers as well, carbamazepine and valparate and We tend to use sedative antihistamines for insomnia and anxiety and agitation and avoiding benzodiazepines where possible. Um, And did you feel able to start long-term medication regimes where you needed or was it done more on an acute basis? We often sort of reflected on whether we should be starting psychiatric medication that, you know, ideally you would give somebody for several months of treatment, not knowing 
when they might leave the islands. But having said that, many of these patients were indeed in need of some medication to stabilise them and it didn't seem logical or ethical to deny them that treatment just because we don't know how long they'll be able to continue it or where they'll be able to get follow it from when they move from the island. So we did start treatment, but you know, bearing in mind the importance of giving all the information to the patient about what the treatment's for and where they might get continued treatment and the importance of that. And luckily we had a project in Athens and still do it at the time, so we would do a referral directly to the project in Athens and generally that's where people went from the island. But resources weren't an issue there? Yeah. We were stopped. Yeah, that's one of the advantages of working with MSF. Normally supplies are there. There's a whole logistical team behind that and obviously the funds necessary. What were you seeing in terms of presentations? So a variety of presentations, a lot of depressive symptoms with suicidal ideation sometimes, and then quite a lot of patients with PTSD. I had the support of a psychiatric advisor based in Geneva who provides advice for projects all around the world and one time she had been looking at the database and said to me, Lindsay this may sound like a strange question but all these patients that you've got with PTSD, do they really have PTSD basically she was was asking because in other projects there aren't so many patients with PTSD but no there were plenty of patients with classical PTSD symptoms and on top of that something that I hadn't come across very much before was secondary psychotic symptoms in PTSD that was surprisingly common as well. I found this interesting and you read into this phenomenon of secondary psychotic symptoms and PTSD what is the difference between those symptoms that you saw and traditional psychotic symptoms you might see in schizophrenia for example? Well, one of the main differences that I was struck by was that these patients with these psychotic symptoms didn't have that classic lack of self-care or disorganised behaviour or thought disorder or withdrawal. They were people who had more insight into their illness and were functioning on a much higher level. And the symptoms tended to be things like auditory hallucinations or sometimes persecutory delusions as well. So similar in a way to psychotic symptoms in other psychotic disorders, but without those accompanying symptoms that we normally see in sort of more chronic psychotic disorders. And this is the psychosis in context of dissociation you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, um, people with PTSD plus secondary psychotic symptoms, many of whom did also have dissociative symptoms, and often it was actually quite difficult to decide whether a symptom was dissociation or psychotic symptoms. For example, I had a patient who would fluctuate quite a lot between having what seemed to be a psychotic presentation with hallucinations and uh, some disorientation and agitation and some very strange behaviour. And then other times she would be perfectly well. And I was really puzzled by this until I did a bit of reading into the topic and realised that probably dissociation psychosis are kind of on a continuum Mm. and that these patients were somewhere in between some of them. There may not be an answer to this, but I may as well ask, like, was there anything different about the content of the psychotic symptoms compared to, say, psychosis and schizophrenia? Well, what we always did was try to, first of all, clarify whether 
the content was related to the traumatic incident itself, in which case we wouldn't call it a secondary psychotic symptom, we'd call it part of the re-experiencing symptoms. For example, mm. if the person heard the voice of the person who had attacked them or whatever. Whereas people who had secondary psychotic symptoms, it was more like they had, for example, the belief that there were people on the island who were following them or wanted to harm them. So in a way, the content was a little bit more similar to the content of psychotic symptoms that we see in schizophrenia, for example, and they didn't have anything to do with the trauma itself. It wasn't people that they remembered from their traumatic experience. Mm. Now, you mentioned that these are quite severe, florid symptoms sometimes, and that you are seeing people who are experiencing suicidal ideation or have made attempts to end their life, but you describe that you have a different ceiling, as it were, in terms of recovery expectations and in terms of risk management. Yeah, so recovery expectations, I mean, it became clear pretty quickly that there wasn't really any hope of full recovery for anybody who continued to live in this awful situation in the combination of the conditions in the camp, um, which I already mentioned were pretty awful, you know, mountains of rubbish and rats scuttling about and keeping people awake at night and then fires and earthquakes and, you know, to be able to recover from a traumatic experience, obviously you need to recover that sense of safety and that was missing. And then on top of that, the uncertainty about the asylum claim, having arrived in Europe, kind of probably having hoped that now would be the time that they could start to rebuild their lives, but finding themselves stuck indefinitely on this mm. island, again, obviously fed into exacerbating or perpetuating uh, mental health problems. So yeah, so the potential for recovery seemed quite limited. And I think a fellow medic described it as just trying to keep people afloat. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, she just said, look, this is all we can really do. And I think she was absolutely right. Um, yeah. And then in terms of risk, yeah, a large proportion of my patients had suicidal thoughts and very limited other resources. Some were alone without any family or friends to support them. And our options were really limited. We didn't have anything like a, a home treatment team or a psychiatric ward to admit people to. And like I mentioned, it was almost impossible to get people admitted. So yeah, I had to become a bit more, a bit more comfortable with these high levels of risk. And we just have to do our best to come up with some kind of safety plan and hope that with that in place, people would come and see us or call us if they were feeling unsafe. And generally, in the time that it was there, that worked. <laughs> Were you able to see people at the frequency that you would have hoped to? For example, if someone is very high risk, could you see them very shortly after you've seen them once? Yeah, that was actually one of the advantages, that the cohort of patients was not huge. I think we had about 40 or something like that on psychiatric medication. And so those that were higher risk, I could see really frequently. And most of them I would see every couple of weeks, actually, because I had the time to, and that was the main thing that we could offer them, a space to come and talk and be listened to. And how long did you have with each patient? I usually schedule an hour for new patients and half an hour for follow-ups, and because the follow-up was quite frequent, that was sufficient, and people would come for their psychology appointments as well, so, yeah. 
seeing patients from a wide variety of backgrounds. What were you noting about the cultural influences on your presentations? Obviously not wanting to generalise, but I did notice a few patterns, such as that women from the Middle East often presented with some quite sort of non-specific symptoms, bodily pains or feeling a bit irritable, getting angry with their children. And generally with those patients, they seem to be presenting with a depressive illness. And then there was also a curious phenomenon with young men, at least a few examples that I saw, young men from Central and West Africa who had experienced a traumatic event at quite a young age and they're still in their teens and then had apparently regressed developmentally, a sort of functional regression development and became completely dependent on siblings or on other people who happened to be from the same country in the camp who supported. So yeah, that, that was interesting. And you also mentioned several single men from Central and West African countries experiencing severe PTSD symptoms with secondary psychotic features, which I know we just discussed, but maybe there was something particular to that demographic as well. That did seem to be the case. I mean, I, I think the only explanation I could think of was that these men had unfortunately had some really awful experiences, mm. not just in their countries of origin, but also en route, for example, in prison in Turkey or other places on route. How do you navigate these sort of cultural differences, not just in presentations, but just in terms of engagement with patients? And I know that there were cultural mediators working with you. Would they serve a role in that? Yeah, definitely. They were absolutely indispensable. We couldn't have done the work without them. I guess an example would be that I found that people from French-speaking African countries often didn't really, when I asked them what they thought we should do, whether they wanted to start treatment or if they preferred to just continue with psychology, they would say, but you're the doctor or you're the psychiatrist. And I remember that the cultural mediators would sometimes sort of try their best to explain that, you know, in this clinic or with MSF, there was a kind of more collaborative way of working and we were interested in knowing what they thought about their treatment. So yeah, the cultural mediators were really, really helpful in not only that part of engagement, but also kind of interpreting what people were telling us in terms of whether that was something that was normal in that culture or whether it was something unusual and that kind of thing. And there was the difference in treatment expectations from different demographics of patients, but also difference in experiences of mental health care. Yeah, exactly. One of the patterns I noticed is that often people would come from the Middle East with prescriptions for antipsychotics that were often just help with sleep or anxiety. And, and in MSF, we are quite strict about evidence-based prescribing and we have protocols. And so that was a challenge, having to explain to people that, you know, we still needed to do an assessment and we couldn't necessarily, we often didn't have the specific medications they wanted, but also that we could only prescribe things if we saw an indication for it. Now, you should talk about what is almost like your formulation of what's going on with patients experiencing trauma on this island, and that they've been through various stresses, significant stresses like war, torture, trafficking, and sexual violence. But then you say that Samos itself is an enduring stressor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
obviously all of these stresses are definitely possible factors in the development of a mental illness, but obviously not everybody develops a mental illness after experiencing these things. But I think what really made these symptoms so severe was the context. And that's what I mean by that is, is what I've described in terms of the living situation and also the state of limbo that people are in not knowing what's coming next. And I really think that those factors either kind of destabilize people, decompensated them, exacerbated any pre-existing mental health problems and really made it quite impossible for people to recover from what they'd experienced. I think this isn't such a unique experience to working abroad, but even in the UK, you know, psychiatrists might be dealing with a situation where they think, what am I even doing here? The issue here is poverty, it's austerity. Did you feel helpless in any way? Yeah, very much so. I really felt helpless because it was really clear that the factors driving the illness were completely out of my control. For example, patients who would come to the clinic and acutely suicidal because they'd had an asylum rejection or people who couldn't sleep because there were fires and rats in the camp. It really did feel difficult to help and I sometimes wondered if we just put everybody in apartments, would that make a bigger difference than what we were trying to do in a more clinical way. What, through all that, do you think the value of MSF was and continues to be at Samos? It did sometimes feel as if we weren't really helping because of all of these factors that were out of our control. But then with time, I did see small improvements in the patients that I was seeing and gained an appreciation for our utility that in this situation on the island, in the loud, crowded camp, in the situation of uncertainty and sometimes bad experiences of interacting with authorities, at least the MSF clinic was a place where people could come and it was a safe space where they could be heard, be listened to, and, you know, obviously we gave them that kind of space with empathy and compassion, and I think that in itself was probably the most helpful thing. How did you feel personally being a part of this process? Well, I have to say it was probably among the most challenging work that I've done since I started working in psychiatry. It was really hard hearing all of these really difficult experiences and seeing the situation that people were in and feeling quite helpless in that sense. So I did find it quite sort of emotionally draining in a way. And I really had to proactively take care of my mental well-being. But then also it was a privilege to be able to witness this. And one of MSF's sort of core principles is to be able to speak out about the experiences that people are going through. And so that felt like an important part of why we were there as well. Certainly in the article, you're speaking out about the experiences that they're going through and almost you're describing that the solution isn't necessarily what psychiatry can offer, but is more a social solution, a political solution. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're seeing that more and more with the UK's recent asylum policies that really don't tackle the root of the problem. And in fact, these policies 
that we have in the UK and in Europe are directly causing or exacerbating poor mental health and and it just didn't feel like psychiatry was the answer as I mentioned in the article that there are so many other factors that need to be addressed. You mentioned that you had to take care of your own mental health if you're not in fit condition to help people then you're no good out there so you have to take care of yourself. What were you doing and were you able to gain some sort of distance or detachment or basically an ability to cope with what you were seeing and that's not to say that you were going through what they were going through but I don't want to trivialize the fact that you were probably under quite a lot of stress yourself yeah definitely I think I was lucky because of the location of the project that we were by the sea and there were mountains so actually my strategy was a daily morning swim in the sea I really felt more able to cope with the day after that and then at the weekends to get a bit of distance from work and the camp going to the mountains to do some hiking so I can't complain there were lots of options for activities to promote mental well-being which in other MSF projects can be more limited. And what about support within MSF? That's you sort of being proactive and taking care of yourself but how are you supported within the organisation? Yeah, really well supported, to be honest. I had, um, as I mentioned, an advisor in headquarters in Geneva who's a psychiatrist, and so she provided that kind of clinical supervision when I needed it. But also, there's always access to mental health services and psychologists from the field, from wherever you are. So, yeah, I didn't use those services so much. Um, I had a, a briefing and a debriefing, but I knew that those services were there should I need them, which was reassuring. I'm glad to hear that your journey with MSF or with international psychiatry is not over. So what are you currently doing? Uh, yeah, so having thought I would just take one year out of training and do one assignment with MSF, I then then went to Kenya and worked in a project for people who use drugs at an um, opiate substitution clinic. And now I'm in Mexico working in a regional position across Mexico, Honduras and Guatemala. And my main role here is in MHGAP, which for those that don't know, is a WHO tool, uh, manual and training program to integrate psychiatric care into primary care. So I supervise and train MSF doctors in the project, but we're also working on collaborating with the Ministry of Health in the places where our projects are to train them and supervise them, support them in providing psychiatric care in primary care, which is a huge gap. Why is this kind of work important to you? Um, well, I think I've always felt like, um, you know, really aware of the, the huge inequality in the world and I think that's especially the case in mental health which often isn't prioritised and isn't seen as something as important as I don't know, a vaccination programme or, or a, um, a response to an epidemic and so I sort of feel a bit of a responsibility to use my training and my knowledge and experience to try to help to close that gap so that people in the world who have absolutely no access to psychiatric care, some of whom in the most extreme circumstances may be tied up or chained at home, when there is a, 
there is a treatment that can help to restore people's independence and functioning. So it just feels like a necessity to me. Excellent. Well, Lindsay, thank you for taking me through your account of working at Samos and what you saw and how you managed it and obviously the personal experience of going through that process. And clearly it's something that you carry forward with you. Thank you very much for having me. And we thank Dr. Lindsay Solera Dukar for joining us for that interview. It does match up with a previous interview we did with Dr. Tom Nutting, who also worked on the Greek islands on a refugee camp with just this idea of psychiatry and medical services in general being this bandage placed on top of a very deep wound of geopolitical issues, social issues. It is interesting, right? We were discussing earlier and it sounded like maybe the situation is either different because of geographical location on a different island, Samos as opposed to Lesbos, or different because of how things have changed over time. But if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Nutting, in his previous interview, told us that often they were quite limited in what they could prescribe, usually it being paracetamol or if a patient was in quite dire need and quite floridly psychotic, they had emergency psychotropic medication that they could make use of yeah that is like the major difference and you know you might have heard in the interview i was quite pleased to hear that msf are well stocked when it comes to ability to see patients see them for follow-ups and to give them medication and refer them on for psychology programs because you're right tom nutting who we spoke to earlier said and I'll quote, if they were lucky enough to get a number at our clinic, we could give patients five days worth of paracetamol maximum out of our pharmacy cupboard, the contents of which varied by donation. And as to psychotropics, we did not officially dispense any, but had a limited emergency stash of anxiolytics and antipsychotics for the absolute worst cases, end quote. Now, I'm not seeing, actually, from his article if he mentioned which organization he was out there with. And I think it wasn't MSF, just the way that he talks about MSF as a different organization. So it may just be a funding issue, but, you know, heartening to see that other doctors are having a better time of it and it's not all so dire as being understocked. But, you know, it doesn't change the fact that Lindsay still felt some degree of helplessness because you can sort of paper over these cracks and help people with their acute mental health issues and as she said feel very useful as a person who's there to listen just to be there as a source of support which can be invaluable but ultimately she's standing against a tidal wave of horrible conditions which is very difficult to address and that just got me thinking about how both authors mentioned that, you know, psychiatry is this sort of fix it in this scenario, but it's not what needs to be fixed. In a way, obviously, there is mental illness that exists outside of social circumstances, but a large amount of mental illness doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's related to one's circumstances. And in a way, it can be the canary in the coal mine. It can be a sign that the situation has gone far south 
and it's like putting a plaster on a broken arm uh, mm. sometimes uh, if one doesn't address the underlying determinants of health that are present in, in one's life and circumstances and solely focuses on the symptoms then one is doomed to an eternal loop of getting better and getting worse and never truly improving in their situation yeah and it's important that all healthcare professionals and especially mental healthcare professionals do not become complicit in the distraction from the true social matters and causes of suffering in the lives of individuals and well large populations i think it's why it's important that individuals such as lindsay do take part in work with the msf to help those who are the most impoverished and disadvantaged but i do think that mental health is weaponized as a way to say this thing is bad because it harms mental health rather than trying to argue that the thing is bad in itself right like anything that affects someone's social circumstances you know socioeconomic status poverty homelessness of course those things are going to have an impact upon someone's mental health that's a consequence it shouldn't be the sole focus in itself it is a moral evil it's a source of suffering right because it's basically saying bad things are bad ultimately like everything bad is harmful to your mental health and you know we shouldn't be using mental health as a proxy for arguing as to why people should live better lives people should just live better lives regardless of the mental health impact people shouldn't be living in subpar housing people shouldn't be living in refugee camps indefinitely that's kind of the distraction that mental health might create now calling it weaponization of mental health may be a bit provocative except when you realize that people use mental health not just to argue against bad things like saying bad things are bad but sometimes they'll say good things are bad so one example would be people who didn't want kids to mask in schools during the height and I understand the COVID pandemic is still going on, but during the height of the COVID pandemic and what the argument would be, instead of arguing about, like, say, freedoms, for example, is saying, oh, wearing a mask in school is traumatic to these children. It's harmful to their mental health. I mean, it's just using it as a shield, isn't it? It's using it as a mask. Um, <laughs> mask. Fra well, fraudulently, in the same way, people champion causes that they do not inherently believe in when it is convenient for their message that they want to sell and you're saying they don't inherently believe in the mental health of children because if they did <laughs> they'd be they'd be campaigning you know outside of a pandemic that kind of thing but on the whole i think it's just a reflection of how sad the situation is and how dire things are and obviously the reason circumstances are the way they are is because of people in positions of power and indifference on their behalf but also indifference from the general public and i don't know but i feel like there have to be these appeals to empathy and to concern because let's face it the sad reality is a lot of people whether because they feel they have enough on their plate as it is or because they simply don't want to think about it you know if a television advert does come on requesting fundraising to help individuals in need in less economically developed countries 
they may switch off they may feel bad for a bit and then look at something else and so i don't know if, if you'd agree but <laughs> i feel like the last couple of decades the adverts that i've seen raising funds for charity have become more and more i guess from my perspective extreme in the situations they're depicting perhaps to appeal more and more to that human empathy i can see how at the same time maybe it is necessary to highlight both the suffering in terms of physical health and mental health that individuals are experiencing in these circumstances in order to i guess generate concern and a desire to improve the situation yeah but i guess that's just maybe the other side of things i mean that's the reality we live in isn't it it's like we're dealing with that now because because we're in a society which isn't collectivist and i'm not i'm not putting that on people i'm putting that maybe on people who have power populations can feel how they want but the people in power seem to be very pro-individualist and not collectivist that since we're in that reality then yes you have to appeal to people's sense of sympathy and you have to say look this is how bad things are getting in terms of people's physical health in terms of people's mental health however if your baseline was we try to improve everyone's situation because that's the right thing to do then you wouldn't need to make these sort of appeals if we automatically said it's not right that there's wealth inequality in the world that there are countries where people make less per day than we do in an hour that just fundamentally is a bad calculation that shouldn't be and we addressed it just as the good that it should be then we wouldn't need to be saying look how the mental health of people that are affected in dire circumstances in poverty in conflict zones but that's not the reality and so that's the appeals that we have to make yeah you know this is the reality that we live in there is the point that lindsay raised which is it was necessary to make difficult decisions and ultimately decisions lean towards trying to at that moment in time help individuals in the acute setting but remaining conscious that there might be uncertainty for patients as to whether or not at their next destination these individuals would be able to get more of the medication that they started and of course we know that for some medications such as say for example SSRIs one can experience discontinuation symptoms and I think just on the whole it is important to be conscious of with many medications but the medications we use in psychiatry in particular it's not as straightforward as stopping and starting and I really don't envy Lindsay or her colleagues having to be put in that position where you know that you can alleviate the suffering of individuals in the short term but you're not sure what might happen in the long term but you have to weigh up the pros and cons of helping them out at this moment in time hoping that at their next destination they will be able to find someone who's able to continue to provide care for them yeah it's a risk and benefit way up isn't it like the benefit of helping people in this short term saying like okay well you know you are ill you do need some symptomatic relief that's the benefit the risk is well will you be able to continue this will you run out of medication and suffer a relapse all sorts of issues that crop up and you know it's just like we have here this 
difficulty with continuity of care and hoping that your discharge letter will make it to the GP and that the medication will be continued and monitored appropriately or that the next team will take over and the handover should be perfect and all that kind of thing. But imagine that with even shakier infrastructure. Mm, absolutely. What you were saying of, I guess, the misdirection and the importance of not focusing on psychiatry as a solution is nicely summed up in the last sentence of the article that Lindsay has written quite nicely summing things up is my hope is that we as the western world can move away from asylum policies that have such damaging effects on mental health and well-being because to me it's clear that psychiatry isn't the solution yeah i mean God, I was I was watching this NHK documentary on professionals and the professional being profiled was a person who surveys dams. So he'll like abseil down a dam and check their integrity and things. But his quote for like what a professional is, is that the goal of a professional is to make themselves obsolete or that our ultimate goal is to be replaced in his sense, you know, saying that you know robots need to take over the job I'm doing because it's really not safe and the safest thing to do is never go down that dam. But I think, like, a part of psychiatry's aim should be to make ourselves unnecessary in this world. Now, obviously, there will always be mental illness, but we should be striving to eliminate social causes of mental illness such to the degree that we're not required as much. Mm. I mean... I'd agree, I think, to an extent. But remember, we are not alone. And some people might say psychiatrists should stay in their lane <laughs> because there are already other professions and sectors that aim to improve circumstances for individuals socially. But at the same time, I think we all need to work together for this to truly be successful. And I think it's impossible in good conscience to practice psychiatry without also caring about the social circumstances of the people we treat and look after. I've said it before and I'll say it again, mental illness doesn't exist in a bubble and it's important to view and care for an individual holistically. Yeah. It was very useful to hear about Lindsay's experiences and, and how she was able to bear witness to such a terrible humanitarian crisis and whilst we ourselves haven't been there by hearing her account and reading her account of the situation. I can only hope it helps more people to bear witness to the situation and try and think about how we can improve this as a society on a global scale. Oh, absolutely. I'll fully admit m most of my days are not filled with thinking about the global conditions of other people. And so it does feel like you're going around with blinders on and you're just living this very blessed life living in the UK comparatively let's say. So it is useful to hear these accounts and just remind yourself your own backyard is not the world. So I have been Sachin. And I have been Hammy. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to this BJSAC International podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJSAC. To listen to more podcasts from the BJSAC Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.